Okay, welcome back to ChrisCast. Um, it's been a little bit of time. Um, this is because Chris has been incredibly busy down in Westminster. And in the so constituency. And in the constituency as well, yes. And there has been pile on of cases, so we've been very, very busy recently. And I think the most exciting time of all is that we've now had a bit of legislation ruled upon on the Supreme Court, which I'm guessing every constituent that is a supporter of the SNP and probably everyone that isn't wants to know about. Now, it turns out the Supreme Court decided the Scottish Government does not have the power to legislate for a referendum. Chris? Well, yes, indeed they have. So, a Supreme Court ruling, uh, there's obviously been some protest about that, and uh, a number of colleagues along the SNP were outside the Supreme Court and I joined them. Uh, surprisingly, in a way, we have to respect the ruling. It's uh, done by judges, of course. Uh, I do think there's some uh, questions around that judgment, but it certainly does not remove the politics of the independence case, why we should be independent, and you know there are questions not just for myself and my colleagues, what questions for our opponents and those who oppose independence as well. There is going to have to be an agreed route yes. to what facilitates an independence referendum. There are, of course, other routes which can now be debated in terms of independence, and the party is going to have uh, that conversation. I will certainly be meeting SNP members I think myself and Hamza are going to be putting together some meeting for members across Glasgow South West just to have the, the discussion and chat. Obviously got to have that discussion with voters and it's been interesting actually the number of uh, people and went up in about Glasgow South West at various events over last weekend um, who are talking about this judgment and talking about what the routes are for the future. There's obviously a conversation about whether the, how the next Westminster election should be fought. My, I have a clear view, we need to fight it in independence. But well, what exactly that entails and what that means, I think is now uh, something that needs to be debated with our supporters and members. It's quite strange though that we're, that we're in a position where we're told that we are a nation, not a colony, but there's not an agreed route because we're told that the only route at this moment in time is if the Westminster Parliament consents to a referendum. A consent where we're outnumbered 10 to 1? They can't say no forever, and they certainly can't say no forever while Scottish people are voting for SNP in the numbers they are and returning the number of parliamentarians that they are. As we know, as you just said there, that we are not getting the method to pursue independence. And I've heard a few people suggest that the ruling itself then makes a mockery of United Nations law because we've become captives and therefore an oppressed people, which I've seen speculated. Well, let's not quite go that far. I, I was personally surprised at the um, link they made to the arguments about Quebec and saying that Scotland's not a colony and we're not oppressed people. This is what they'd said. That may be accurate that we are not a colony, we're not oppressed people, but that means that for the politicians, they have to agree, well, what is the route should a part of the United Kingdom decide to leave the United Kingdom? Because with Brexit, there was there, there was a route to be taken. Absolutely. But, but the example you could give as well, you know, should the European Union have said yes or no to a referendum? Well, of course not. People would think that was tough. So it's all very 
mysterious, isn't it? It, it is indeed. I think everybody recognises that when the, the treaty was signed in 1707 due to bribery and corruption, everybody knew that, that was an agreement between two sovereign nations, Scotland and England at the time. Well, actually two sovereign parliaments at the time. Indeed. Of course, the people did not get a say in no, uh, they didn't. 1707 because there was no franchise available to uh, working people at that time. And you've used, again, in more colourful terms than I would, but yes, there was a bung given <laughs> to the parliamentarians in Scotland. Which was not an inconsiderable sum of money to agree the Treaty of Union. It's supposed to be a Treaty of Union. I'm looking forward to debating with colleagues the road ahead. I do think that whilst we're doing that, it is more important that we discuss with voters and our fellow Scots the why for independence. I, and I do believe that with this current Tory-made cost of living crisis, that there's a clear economic case for independence. I believe there's a clear political case for independence. There's a clear social case for, for independence. And what I think the Supreme Court ruling has, um, unwittingly perhaps, has made that there's a democratic case for independence and there has to be on those four grounds I think that we have a very good case that we can take to the people of Scotland as to why Scotland should be an independent country. It's no use them saying well you had one shot and we are then going to keep you from having another shot uh, forever and ever. It's just a nonsensical position. And what I have been surprised at to some extent is just how much it is galvanised not just SNP support, but other individuals who think that, no, there's something not quite right here. And it has it certainly galvanised their supporters, and I have seen that when I've been out and about in Glasgow South West. I know, I know certainly that uh, James O'Brien had a go about the democratic deficit on LBC, and Owen Jones has been saying the same now, kind Owen of Jones thing. Owen Jones is a good uh, an, a he is indeed, analyst, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, he's got, he's got, and he's got Scottish family, and I think he's one of the... He's a, one of the political commentators at a UK level who has probably a better understanding of Scottish politics and the Scottish nation than many others and some of the more risible comments yeah. that we see from so-called political <laughs> commentators. There appears to be an absolute black hole of recognition of Scotland and how it works and the history of the country when you see things like politics live and commentators from shall we say, more extreme right-wing think tanks are their opinion of what Scotland should be and what Scotland is as a country. Of course, would not read anything that a right-wing think tank would ever come uh, up with. Uh, no, no, I just tend to sit there incredulous and open-mouthed at some of the comments that get made. I think what we'll do, is we're just going to go and talk a little bit about previous precedent and things that have happened in the past. Now, Chris... Scotland yes. is a part of the United Kingdom at the moment, isn't it? Uh, yes. And therefore, as part of the United Kingdom, when a Westminster government signs a treaty with another nation, they are signing on Scotland's behalf, are they not? Yes, indeed. Kingdom of Great Britain and, and Northern, Northern Ireland, Ireland. which is 100 years old. It is. Let's not forget that, due to the addition of Ireland and the various little the, shenanigans the, that went the on. The current UK is 100 yeah. years old. Yeah, yes. the current UK is 100 years old. Some of you may be aware of a small piece of political uh, history known as the Northern Ireland Act, which spurred from the Belfast Agreement, bearing in mind that Scotland is part of the UK. The UK signed on Scotland's behalf a piece of legislation 
that said a referendum on a united Ireland is to be called by the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland when it appears likely that the majority of people would vote in favour of a united Ireland. If the referendum is defeated, at least seven years must pass before a new referendum can be held. The UK government, they have tied their own hands by their backs, behind their backs here, and told us that a political generation is seven years, and yet we still keep hearing time and time and time again, you promised it was once in a generation. Have they shot themselves in the foot with that? Let's answer it this way. Let's not compare Scotland with Northern Ireland. There are historical differences, and I say that because I have family members both in the north of Ireland or Northern Ireland, and I have relatives in the Republic of Ireland. But what it does demonstrate is that there is an inconsistency between how different parts of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which is 100 years old, the current construct of the UK, that there is a discrepancy perhaps and differences as to how different parts of the kingdom are being treated politically. That is an inconsistency, I believe, that politicians at UK level are perhaps going to have to get their head round. As far as we're concerned, we continue to articulate and argue our case of why Scotland should be independent. And I, as we probably already know, there's going to be a new election to Stormont soon. And the way things are going, certainly with the popularity of the UK government, there could be a real chance that Sinn Féin could hold a majority in Northern Ireland. I'm not sure they'll get a majority because they will certainly, if the current polling is um, correct, they will be the largest party. There may be a nationalist majority. I would expect, I think the current polls have got the Alliance doing very well, that Sinn Féin will be the largest party. What that means for the SDLP, we'll see. And the DUP may lose some ground. So fascinating for us as political observers as to what happens here. Yes. But certainly I think there's a very real possibility that there will be a, a poll of some sort in the very near future as to what happens with Northern Ireland. But we shall see, Alistair. I don't Indeed. have a crystal ball, we, unfortunately. We I, wish I, I wish I did have a crystal ball. That would be great, uh, wouldn't it? Because there's a lot of things that I'm doing and I'm hoping to see a number of things happen in the constituency that will be the case. But I am hopeful that we continue to progress with their, their support and it looks like that there's some evidence out there with a recent poll that's showing that the support is increasing. Well, we were waiting for the result of the Supreme Court judgment. It occurred to me that they were always going to say no because if they opened that gate to say that Scotland could hold a referendum, I think there would be a vast clamouring for a second EU referendum on Brexit. They could have unwittingly given the Remain side a foot in the door to hold another referendum and say, well, if Scotland's allowed to change their mind, why are we not allowed to change our mind? Well, I don't get the sense that that's going to happen in the UK for the simple reason is that the Labour Party have now become hardline Brexiteers uh, to the point that it's... Well, it's strange that they're doing that, but they're obviously playing to an audience that they thought they, they had lost in the 2019 election. I don't see any prospect of the UK as an entity rejoining yeah. the EU in the very near future because you now have the two largest parties. Indeed, the three UK parties 
are all saying, and I include the Liberal Democrats yep. on this, and they, they don't like being reminded of this. Right. Especially, I remember when uh, Alison Thulis um, was responding on behalf of the SNP at the Autumn Statement, referred to the Brexit-supporting parties, the Tories, Labour and Lib Dems, and the Lib Dems were most displeased at the notion that they were seen as a Brexit party. But in reality they are, because they have yep. also put uh, in as a position that they um, do not wish to push at this stage that the UK joined the EU. And that's another question for those uh, voters who believe that Scotland should be in the EU, and if they believe Scotland should be in the EU, there is one route for that, one current route for that that's open to them, and that's through independence. Yeah, interesting you bring up the Lib Dems because I've got a terrible confession here. Once upon a time I lived in England for a little while and I was always eligible to vote. I voted Lib Dem and the reason I voted Lib Dem at the time was due to their federalist stance on the UK and their strong pro-European opinion and that was back in the 90s. So they have completely about-faced on that now, haven't they? they are. Well, that is a... An almighty confession you've just it's made. Terrible. To I, ha I had no option. Listeners, but I, I mean, I do. I mean, I do get the sense that there are people who voted Lib Dem for that reason across these islands. I don't get the sense that people are are heading back to to the Lib Dems and the sort of numbers they did attract in the nineties, principally because of their. Um, how can I put this politely? Yes, dirty deal with the Tories in twenty ten. That that pretty much hobbled them. It was. Shall we say a masterstroke by the Tories in their own way because they basically got the Lib Dems to lead with all the bad news and then swallowed them up and yeah and, and, and took the seats off them and just turned everybody Tory. Yes, just going to skip on here when we're talking about treaties and you'll obviously all be aware of the Smith Commission that was held where people like Gordon Brown promised us that we would have all the biggest, strongest, most powerful, lengthiest, most exciting new powers possible. But there's a little clause on that which again commentators down south fail to even acknowledge. In section 18 of the Smith Commission it says, it is agreed that nothing in this report prevents Scotland becoming an independent country in the future should the people of Scotland so choose. Now let's go back to 2021 to the Holyrood elections. When you count up every single pro-independence vote from the Holyrood elections it was scored 51% and the Unionists did not win and yet we are still being hogtied, even though they are claiming that we have no mandate to pursue independence. Now, going back to the Belfast Agreement, that clearly follows that it was likely the majority of people would vote in favour of a united Ireland. Well, the key thing here in the Smith Commission Agreement is that there is nothing in that report that prevents Scotland becoming an independent country in the future, should the people of Scotland so choose. And that is the key part of that phraseology is that the Smith Commission was very clear in terms that although there were going to be some new powers given to the Scottish Parliament, there was obviously a debate about what they should be, that, there was, that nothing the Smith Commission did was to prevent, should the Scottish people desire, independence of Scotland. And this comes back to the democracy point, is that should the people of Scotland and the majority of people in Scotland say that they wish to have a referendum and vote for political parties to support that position, then that is what should happen. The day of the ruling, there was an urgent question asked in Parliament regarding 
the Supreme Court ruling. Yes, there was indeed, Alistair, and so, some of us asked questions of uh, Alistair Jack, is, uh, and, and I do call him Mrs. Face, and he <laughs> knows this is a term of endearment, the Governor-General, a question. <laughs> and the question I put to the Governor-General, um, or Secretary of State for Scotland, if uh, the listeners prefer, is that I, I pointed out that uh, here is this um, Secretary of State for Scotland, who is, as all political commentators seem to believe, will be a member of the House of Lords, the unelected House of Lords, at a time, uh, time of his choosing, at yes. a time when he chooses, setting democratic tests uh, on the rest of us. If that doesn't tell you how uh, risible the uh, arguments that the UK state get themselves into, then <laughs> nothing does more than just show how risible that position really is. Following that, you have Keir Starmer now saying that he's going to abolish the House of Lords. I'm fairly sure that if anybody is up on the history, they will know that that was a promise, one of the promises Keir Hardy made when the founding of the Labour Party. So over 100 years ago, Labour promised the abolition of the House of Lords and they've not done it. So why should we ever think that Keir Starmer is going to do it when he comes to power, should he come to power? Well, indeed. You know, the old favourites are getting reeled out again, aren't oh. they? You know, I mean, it's like, it's like in the name of the wee man. Oh. Yes, <laughs> a phrase that's familiar to listeners of this podcast. In the name of the, the wee man. man. Yeah. Is, uh, God love them, that's all we can say. They're trying. I mean, I think, <laughs> I was uh, amused by some of the social media commentary when th- that was announced. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable stuff. On to Scottish events. Okay, folks, let's talk about Scotland, what's been going on. Just appeared in the social medias over the last couple of days. There has been polling done on the independence question by a company called Redfield and Winton, who I'll happily admit I'd never heard of before. No, they're fairly new, and I think they've only recently got the British Polling Council membership, fairly recently. They carry out a number of polls. There are a number of pollsters who are doing UK polls at the moment, which are always uh, interesting to, to look at. The Scottish figures of the UK polls are a bit all over the shop because just purely because of the sample size but they have the SNP between 3 and 5% at UK level and what's of little value of that is that it's between 30 and 50% well a lot of seats change hands there don't they exactly um, but this particular uh, independence poll the sample size of I think a thousand or just over a thousand so it would qualify certainly under a, a poll of value to look at and it shows ne- a yes 49 no 44% and don't know 5% so very encouraging that it's moving in that direction that means that we continue to push the case as to why Scotland should be an independence country. For those of our opponents who thought that the Supreme Court ruling was going to do in the case of yeah. independence, it doesn't seem to be working, does it? Because doesn't, they no. think that this poll was taken on the 26th of November, yep. is that right? Yeah. One of the things that was interesting was the way that the, the poll was released, because the headline poll that they released indicated that Labour would make gains in a general election, the SNP would fall back a little bit. Obviously, you get all the usual crowing by Labour saying, they're on the massive road to recovery and it's all going to be tickety-boo for them and all the rest of it kind of relying on people not reading the full report so I actually had to go quite far down into the report to find that polling regarding the independence question yeah but to be fair they actually put it up and social media they 
did do it the other way around. They did put the Independence Poll first and then the Westminster Poll. What's fascinating about that at the moment is that Labour seemed to be gaining on the back of Conservative voters and we were certainly within the margin of error of where we were in 2019 but the slippage seems to be with the smaller independent supporting party. Now this will be a challenge for us at the next Westminster election. We yep. won't need to. And the case I would argue is that if you listen to Tory politicians at Westminster they concentrate on the SNP vote as a vote for independence yes. and no one else. And that is something that we will have to articulate to the electorate is to, to listen to what they say when they talk about these things. Now Alistair Jack is at it. He no. he, he suggests well uh, yes I know it's a shock that the Governor General it's uh, so a term of endearment Alistair you know it is. When he says make statements like only a third of the Scottish people support the SNP what he's doing there is he's taking non-voters to be against independence. Now this is an old trick from yes. 1979 folks yes. in the first devolution referendum ah see so there was two referendums for uh, devolution. There was indeed yes uh, Alistair, fascinating isn't fascinating, it? Fascinating yeah. Um, in the 1979 referendum non-voters were classified as no due to uh, a 40% rule which was introduced to parliament by a Scot called George Cunningham who represented Islington a nice seat in London interestingly he joined the now defunct although it's still going in some form SDP Social Democratic yep. Party interestingly enough but he uh, introduced the 40% rule which meant people with two addresses if they'd voted yes uh, then their other address would count as no if you were in a coma you would have voted yep. no and if those who on the electoral register but had deceased before the time of the poll they were, were no also one. counted as no voters now this just is not on frankly they try these tricks with trade union ballots interestingly where they, they set these sorts of quotas just at it in, in, <laughs> into terms of some of their yes. arguments but folks for those of you who support independence please talk to your friends and neighbours who are not yet persuaded and talk to them and persuade them that independence should happen yeah it's, it's always important when you're listening to debates in Westminster and proclamations from the Scottish office that they have certain ways of framing things to make everything sound bad so always try and read behind the headlines there's, there's always information down there they don't want you to know about well indeed another little thing going on in Scotland as you know folks there's still strikes ongoing we've got the we've got the posties, posties uh, we've got the yeah. UCU we've got teachers yeah. uh, we've got a number uh, solidarity to all you won't see this folks but you'll see this in some of my photographs is that I'm proudly wearing my solidarity indeed. with the strikers badge on which was kindly given to me by the Assistant General Secretary of the STUC thanks very much for that Sean proudly wearing that in the House yep. of Commons and it does get a reaction with our Conservative friends that must be said and I also understand that we're not quite resolved the train driver strike um, or RMT strike issues but there is still network rail strikes coming to the country, isn't there? Yes, it looks that way. Uh, there, there was a meeting today, though, so we'll see how that goes. But solidarity to our uh, good friends in the RMT. Pretty much covers the Scotland news, unless you've got anything else. I think we should move on to your favourite sure, part, right. Alistair. Nerdspot. Yes, Nerdspot is making rearing its ugly head again after so many things that we had to discuss in previous episodes we had to drop it for a while so today we're going to talk about the differences between committee and debate 
Any of you that are watching Chris's social media feeds will see that we regularly post up episodes where Chris has asked a question in the House of Commons, uh, whether that be in the main chamber or the Westminster Hall. And there was also the famous episode where Chris took on Chris Coffee, and that was in, de- in committee. So, Chris, can you explain to our listeners the difference between being on a committee and being in the debate? Okay, so the debates, the uh, debates will be either, as you suggested, Westminster Hall which can be a German debate or the main chamber. Um, so there was, for example, recently, I think you put up a video of me speaking in a debate on the autumn statement. So you are debating with your colleagues, you can take interventions, you can make a speech, usually time-limited speech unless you're on the front bench or the front bench spokesperson where you get a bit of latitude. So you can then interact in that way. The select committee is different. The select committee is effectively is scrutinising the work of the government department. So in my case, I'm currently a member of the Department of Work and Pension Select Committee, and we scrutinise the work of the department. And this week, we had the new Secretary of State in front of his Mill Stride, in which we were able to ask him policy questions around his uh, departmental portfolio. So I asked a number of questions on deductions, which listeners will know, and those of people who follow me on social media, follow me in the press, know this is a particular bugbear of mine, where um, because of advances or overpayments, claimants are having money deducted from their universal credit claim to the tune on average of £62 a month. That's a lot of money to people who are claiming universal credit. And I think that that produces a cycle, which I've now dubbed the poverty tax, but that is continuing to me a cycle of keeping people in poverty. The other questions I've asked, though, and which I do think need scrutinised, is the issue around sanctions. Yep. And sanctions have exploded and soared since the pandemic. These seems to be a very tough line. So this is people who, for example, don't attend a meeting with the, the work coach, but that can often be health-related, for example. Yep. We have a particular constituent case, which I did uh, mention to Mel Stride, yep. of someone who could not make an interview and I gave the health example as to why that was the case and the condition that this constituent had but they were sanctioned and we're still trying to get that sanction back. The average sanction a month is £250 which is a lot of It is a lot of money when someone on benefit. Total for the UK in one month in August this year the Department of Work and Pensions clawed back £36 million pounds on sanctions. And I understand the autumn statement, they also gave more money to try and chase down. What's fascinating about that question? It's a fascinating question you've asked. So yes, in the autumn statement, the Treasury has given the Department of Work and Pensions an allocation of more resources to chase fraud and error where they think they can claw back 280 million, I think it is. What's fascinating about that is that the way they presented that in the autumn statement booklet was the Office for Budget Responsibility had questions around how they got to that figure. The Office of Budget Responsibility, who do an independent analysis of the autumn statement, then combined the figures of DWP fraud and error and HMRC chasing tax avoidance and evasion, of which the figures for tax avoidance and evasion are way less than the figures for DWP fraud and error. In the name of the wee man, folks, pull the other one. Pull the other one. Pull the other one. So there's going to be 6,000 additional staff across these two government departments and agencies chasing both 
but that we're being asked to believe that the tax gap is 0.6 billion pounds. The current estimates by both the PCS Union and Tax Justice of the amount of tax avoidance and evasion is 70 billion pounds oh. a year. But the government is only putting in resources to get back 0.6 billion in the next five years. That is a disgrace. That is as, a disgrace. As our shortest lived ex-Prime Minister once said. Yes. I know that we deal in the office here with a great number of cases regarding DWP claimants and trying to help them out to get money that they're owed and it takes so long to try and process this and it costs money just basically then delays and referring things back to somebody else in another office down the road and backwards and forwards and the, the constant questioning. What, one of the things that they really do like to take account of is the household budget when they calculate people's benefit rates. Well, we don't seem to take account of household budgets when we're referring to people like Rishi Sunak and his wife. I am shocked and stunned that you put that forward as a su su suggestion. Unbelievable. Also, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yes, non-dom status is a huge issue, isn't it? It is. It yes. really is, and it's an absolute disgrace that uh, the government aren't tackling that. But I think the uh, sophisticated electors out there <laughs> in Glasgow South West can work out well. I think it's always worth mentioning as well that Mrs Sunak, her father, is one of the key people in Infosys and Infosys are an Indian technology company who are still trading with Russia and Vladimir Putin. Oh dear dear, shocking. That's unacceptable. But let, let's go back to the committee for a second because yeah. I think this is important. The last set of questions I asked the Secretary of State was around the bereavement support payment. Now that's important for two reasons. Because the bereavement support payment is one of the benefits which has not been uprated in line with inflation. Not every single benefit has been no. uprated in line with inflation. It's very important that people know that. Couldn't get an answer as to why. And then, there, of course, there is the uh, issue we have with one particular constituent who has been uh, campaigning on this issue and I've been assisting her on, is the qualification for cohabiting couples around the bereavement support payments. That's a very real issue. We're hoping that we can get that over the line with the remedial order. We had some questions around that, so they're going to come back to us. So we managed to, I think we will be able to shape some policy changes, which as a select committee we've done in the past. And I think it's one of the more rewarding parts of the job is that when we get some successes in these committees and changing government policy for the better. I still take the view that the advanced payment system is not working because it creates this cycle of deductions and enhancing poverty, that we should have a start after payment after two weeks when we know people are clearly qualifying for this for, for universal credit they should get a starter payment at that point there are certainly payments available to people moving from DWP into work. You have continuations on things like housing benefit and council tax awards when you move from unemployment to work. No reason why it shouldn't be the other way around either, should it? Absolutely correct. Interesting stuff there. Hopefully you're all a lot more enlightened about committees and debates. Let's move on to some local news. first big story that we've got is lottery funding for Glasgow South West. Well, Tell yes, us. indeed. There was a, a little drop-in session which the National Lottery had in Parliament, but we've got a very pleasing email of uh, National Lottery Community Fund. Successful applications for many organisations, at least 15 uh, organisations. Excuse me, we'll give a shout out to some of them. So AR 
26 charity, Aspire, Crouchton Community Group, great organisation, Govan Youth Information Project, Greater Pollock Services, Lourdes Secondary School, Men's Shed Govan, Park Villa, Football Development, Pollock United, Safety Awareness Glasgow, who we know. Fun mate, yeah. Femney, uh, Starter Packs Glasgow, um, uh, Values Into Action Scotland. So we had 15 organisations, various amounts, some of them six figures, some of them four figures, some of them five figures. So great, and it's great to see that the organisations in Glasgow South West that do so much for our communities are being uh, rewarded with National Lottery Community Funding Grants. And what that means, Alistair, is that one of the tasks that you have is that you help and assist with putting together early day motions which will be tabled in Parliament celebrating these achievements of these organisations and we have all of these organisations will have their own early day motion that will be able to provide them with and it'll be for other opportunities for other MPs to sign and I always look forward to handing over these early day motions because that lives with these organisations forever and does help them with their future funding applications so it's always one of the parts of this job I like is to congratulate local organisations for the great work that they do. Well it's funny you should mention it because being the diligent employee I actually finished them this morning. Excellent, good <laughs> stuff. So the EDMs are soon to be heard in Parliament. Early day motion yeah. and we'll, we'll maybe introduce that at our next nerd spot after yeah. your yeah. favourite part yeah. of the programme Indeed. to what an early day motion Indeed. actually is. So other local news, we're more progress on ladders and on so food we have a, So we have affordable food projects on the go I want to thank all the local organisations which are are part of this and we have a number of projects on the go but I'm delighted to announce that the Lint House Larder will be open on the 15th of December Excellent. at the warehouse at the Lint House Housing Association. We will have news soon our static larder at Cardonald which will be at the Swinton Flats. We will have a date uh, for listeners at our next podcast and we'll also have a date for the mobile larders. Now we're going to have mobile, mobile pit stops for these larders and we've identified Corker Hill as one. Lint House will become a static larder but that's Good. currently one of yep. our mobile pit stops and we're looking at other areas across the constituency in which we can have uh, these uh, uh, mobile pit stop ladders. Now the key part of this is is to sell food on at cost. Food inflation at the moment is 16%. That's stopping a number of people being able to buy the shops to feed their families and themselves. So we want to assist the community and constituents with with meeting that particular challenge by opening these ladders up and trying to sell food on at cost as, much, as, as best we can. And it's to, also to help people move away from food bank use. Glasgow South West Food Bank are on our steering group fully bought into the project. We have a large number of organisations who are on the steering groups for these, particularly organisations who have provided food support during the pandemic and, and before. So I'm happy that we're getting this work done because I think it's badly needed out there. I, I see this as a lack is that you have at the bottom of the ladder people who are having to use the food bank and further up the ladder is being able to shop at the supermarkets like Tesco and Sainsbury's and these outfits. I've always thought there was something in the middle for people to step up and that is this ladder and what we've actually had to say to the major supermarkets is if you help us with some food supply that will free up money for people to go to larders or pantries or community supermarkets so that's the type of model then that will free up some of the money so that they can go to Tesco and Sainsbury's and all these it's about trying to get people's money to travel a bit further and I think at the moment 
with the cost of living crisis that the Tories have made, that it's uh, trying to set up a practical solution to help people in Glasgow Centre. And I noticed there was a question that you raised with Grant Shapps regarding the impact of the cost of living on households, and his answer was that it was all Vladimir Putin's fault. Which is uh, yes, but the, the well, as well, yes. I mean, th- that's an excuse. But there are countries out there who have been able to challenge better, or, or have been able to address the challenges better than the UK has. Some of those countries, of course, have things like nationalised energy company, Alistair. That always helps, doesn't or, or, it? Or they have a regulator that regulates on behalf of consumers and not the energy <laughs> companies, yep. unlike the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was not happy at the line of questioning from me and my colleagues no, in those no, particular exchanges. But I'm going to. Continue Continue to add. I my preference is for a public-owned energy company. Before we get there, the regulator has to be there on behalf of the consumer and not be some go-between with the energy companies and make excuses for what the energy companies are doing. Anything else interesting happening in Scotland around the local community? Well, those are the two things. I've been obviously trying to get round as many organisations as I can. I think I've visited three Christmas fairs on Saturday, all in the Great Govan Ward. How are the mince pies? Uh, so, well, I, I don't think I consumed a mince pie. No, I don't think I consumed a mince pie. We certainly didn't see um, any back in the office. No, no, well, there you are. Well, <laughs> yes. Yes, there'll be a final written warning, listeners, <laughs> at the end of this podcast for that <laughs> remark. But it was, it was good to see local organisations uh, helping people out with Christmas. Christ- these are Christmas fairs, it's always good to, to get round and uh, to uh, support these local organisations. And we'll certainly be touring the social media pages. But please yep. tag please tag Chris Stevens MP, folks. Yep. If you have an organisation that's doing some event uh, over the weekend, and we'll try and get to you. But we're hoping to put out another podcast podcast just before Christmas there but it's worth bearing in mind now that we're on the run up to it and the office will be closed over Christmas. The office will be closed from Friday the 23rd of December at 1.30pm and reopens on the 5th of January. However, calls and emails will be answered on Wednesday the 4th of January. And urgent cases. And and urgent urgent cases, cases will be dealt with so be. people need us urgently. Please uh, leave a message with us uh, either by email or phone and someone will be dealing with that during the Christmas period, which may very well be me uh, and the office manager. On top of that, the cab, so there will be no outreach in the office here on Friday the 16th of December. When we've put up the next podcast, keep your eye on social media, folks. We're going to publish a lot of helplines that you might find useful over the Christmas period if you have any issues. In the meantime, Chris, how can people get a hold of us? They can get a hold of us at chris.stevens, that's with a ph, dot mp at parliament.uk, chris.stevens.mp at parliament.uk, or by telephone, the office 0141. 883 0875. That's 0141 883 0875. We have chrisstevens.scot for the website, which we have a form you can contact us as well. And keep your eye on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm on Instagram, folks. You're very much so on Instagram, yes. That's it for us this week, then, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll speak to you again later. Chris, say goodbye. Uh, goodbye. And it's goodbye from me as well, and we'll speak to you later.